to the chapter we read there, John chapter 6. I'd like us to think about uh, verse 40. John chapter 6 and verse uh, 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, we know that um, Jesus did lots of miracles. And sometimes we imagine that um, miracles by themselves will just bring about an amazing outcome. And certainly the fact that um, from these uh, five loaves and a few fish, Jesus did an extraordinary miracle where um, at least 5,000 men were fully satisfied. And it's not actually clear if there were any uh, women there, but um, no doubt they probably were. So if that is the case, then there's a lot more than 5,000 people gathered. So on one hand, we have thousands of people who benefited physically from his miracle. And there's no sign that anyone benefited spiritually from it. And from one point of view, that is quite extraordinary, isn't it? We would... um, think that um, people who are seeking signs that when they got one that that would be it that they would be convinced but of course um, the as you can see in this conversation that took place in in the synagogue in Capernaum after Jesus a day or so after Jesus had done the miracle, and they had actually taken part in it, but they hadn't realized it was a sign, because they say to him later on, what sign do you do to prove that you are the Messiah? And this was one reason for their uh, scepticism was that, well, um, they could go back into their history and think about important events that occurred, like the giving of the manna. Jesus um, endeavors to uh, explain to them that he is the bread of life, And again, we would think, wouldn't we, that um, if the actions of Jesus in the miracle 
don't bring about a good response, then surely his words will bring about a good response. After all, he's the one that speaks the truth. He's the one that gives accurate assessments. He's the eternal God. He's the one that spoke the universe into existence. He's the one that maintains it in existence. He's the almighty one. And we must um, acknowledge that here he is uh, endeavoring with everything that is in him to bring about an interest in his listeners. But at the end of it, from a human point of view, he even has to check up that the 12 are still interested. Because as we read at the end of the chapter, after many which is quite an extraordinary statement there in verse 66. After many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, he turned to 12 and said, do you want to go away as well? And Peter imagined he was speaking for the 12 when he gave his very positive reply not realizing that even one of them was not the real thing. So, if this was a newspaper article, chapter 6, a newspaper article, what would the headline be? Just run it through your heads. What headline would you put across John chapter 6? New movement starts to peter out. Miraculous signs don't work. Popularity on the decline. It's quite a serious chapter, isn't it? And Jesus, well, he has to deal with a skeptical audience. The skeptical audience who has seen his ability to do certain things. And as we can see that he highlights for them that he's the bread of life. And he also stresses repeatedly as he speaks there in the synagogue in Capernaum. He speaks about his heavenly father. And he says several things about 
the Heavenly Father. And obviously each one of the things he says about the Heavenly Father is uh, very important. But in the verse I want us to look at, he tells us the will of the Father. The will of the Father announced to a skeptical audience who are questioning the authenticity of Jesus. So I'd just like us um, to look at the, the verse and see what it tells us about the Heavenly Father. And in the verses, I want to look at um, three or four things. One is God's will revealed. What is God's will? And then secondly, faith is described. Described it in two ways. It involves looking at and believing in. Looking at Jesus and believing in Jesus. And then, if someone does that, Jesus states what the outcome will be. They will have eternal life. What's that? What is Jesus speaking about when he talks about eternal life? I mean, he's not talking about endless existence. Every person has endless existence. So it doesn't mean that somehow or other we are going to exist forever. That is our reality for us, whether we are aware of it or not, we are going to exist forever. But what is eternal life? I remember that was a question that quite intrigued me when I was a um, teenager. What is eternal life? Something that we announce to people. Believe in Jesus, you'll have eternal life. What would we say to somebody if they said to us, what is eternal life? And then after that particular outcome, Jesus talks about the future. Almost as if he is snatching one event out of the future. The resurrection. I will raise him up at the last day. So are these four things. Father's will revealed and faith described and the outcome stated, and the future assured. God's will. Well, I'm sure all of us know that there's two ways of speaking about God's will. There is what we could call his secret will, and there is what we can call his revealed will. And one of 
Um, the peculiar things about these wills is that we're quite, people are quite keen to find out what the secret one is, but not so keen to focus on the revealed one, which is kind of strange, isn't it? Because as far as the secret one is concerned, we're never going to get to know it. And as far as the revealed one is concerned, well, there's lots of information given. And there's enough in the revealed will to satisfy anything we imagine we need to know about God's secret will. What is God's secret will? Well, the answer to that question is, it's everything. As our catechism says, whatsoever comes to pass. Everything that happens in time and space. Also, everything that happens in what we call time and in eternity. It's all God's secret will. There's nothing uncertain. Nothing hidden from God. He knows everything. Doesn't doesn't only include our actions, it also includes our thoughts. Everything about us, what we might think are very original ideas, are all part of God's eternal plan, his secret will. Nothing outside of it. And of course there's aspects of that that we don't understand. And that's one reason why it's secret, because we could never understand it. And there's no obvious reason that anyone has ever come up with as to why we should know what God's secret will is. We're to leave it where it is. It's got nothing to do with us. And even if we did get some insight into it, what difference would it make? We take a very... Straightforward one, it includes the date of our birth and the date of our death. What good would it do to any of us to know what the date of our death is? If we knew it was going to happen on such and such a date, how would we react to that? It wouldn't do us any, any difference to us to know that kind of detail. As a matter of fact, it would have all kinds of consequences And that's just only one detail about it. If somebody was to say to us what we'd be doing in 10 years' time, how would that benefit us today? We imagine a bigger, big sense of security, but on the other hand, it might bring a lot of fear. So we don't know what God's secret will is, And it's good that we don't. There's no necessity. And there's actually no method by which we can get to know it. The secret things belong to the Lord. But what he has revealed belong to us. So, the revealed will. What about that? Well, there's different ways of looking at it. Because sometimes God reveals something and then later on indicates something else. 
And, for example, there was his revealed will in the Garden of Eden. God said to Adam, you shall not eat of that tree. And that was his revealed will. And as we know, sadly, Adam paid no heed to that. And instead of obeying God, he disobeyed him. And as a consequence of disobeying God's revealed will, Adam, as as the representative of the entire human race, brought the entire human race into the state of being opposed to God, of being rebels against God, of being sinners. Not only sinners by their actions, but sinners by nature. Born sinners. No one ever becomes a sinner. Everyone is born a sinner because of Adam's rebellion. And that's because he disobeyed God's revealed will. But that revealed will is, it's been, um, I suppose it's been, um, the emphasis has changed because Adam disobeyed. So later on, God gives other aspects to his revealed will. For example, he gave to the nation of Israel a, If he gave to Adam one construction, he gave to the nation of Israel hundreds of instructions. We know about the Ten Commandments and we know about all the other laws that are found in the books of Leviticus and Numbers and so on. And they're all part of God's revealed will to Israel. They were an indication that he was their sovereign And that if they kept all these laws, it would be good for them. He didn't always say with regard to each of them why it would be good for them. But he did give them to them. And if they followed them, then certain benefits would come. And sadly, Israel disobeyed God's revealed will. It's almost a description of their entire history. Disobedient to God. No interest, really, in his revealed will. And, as we know, um, that way of doing things, God no longer uses. The Jewish ceremonial law It's no longer required of anyone, not even of the Jews, as far as God is concerned, although some of them still practice it. That's two examples of God's revealed will, and both of them um, have been rejected. And there's a third kind of God's revealed will, or a third aspect of God's revealed will, mentioned in our text. For this is the will of my Father. This is, is Jesus, 
what my Father really wants. So, just want us to think about that. What does God want each of us at this precise moment to do? Jesus has told us this is the revealed will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Now I suspect that all of us have read this verse, heard it many times. Have all of us paid the same degree of attention to it as Adam did to God's revealed will in the Garden of Eden and as Israel did to God's revealed will on Mount Sinai? Well, the proof that we have paid any attention to it is that we will do what it says. And what Jesus says his Father wants, it applies to everyone. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, that's what the Father wants. The Father wants people to look at Jesus and believe in him. That's his revealed will. Doesn't leave anyone out. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will all get the same blessing if they do it, which is eternal life. So we can move on to think about this response that the Heavenly Father wants from initially from this group of people that were listening to Jesus but by extension um, from us and I mean there's Jesus standing in front of them and he says to them my father wants you to look at me right now and believe in me. And that is what he's saying to them, isn't it? As he stands there in the synagogue Capernaum. My heavenly Father wants you at this precise moment to look at me and believe in me. Of course, by extension, we can't see Jesus physically, but the same thing applies, that before we believe in him, we are to look at him. And obviously, by looking at him, we'll get reasons for believing in him. So, what would they have seen as they looked at Jesus? Well, it seems to me that one of their concerns was really that, um, well, Jesus had done a small sign, fed 5,000. Moses fed 2 million every day. 
That's how many Jews, they reckon, came out of Egypt. 600,000 adults. And for some reason, the number is expanded to include another 1,400,000 to bring it up to 2 million. That's a suggestion that the number of Israelites were. So Moses fed them, or God through Moses fed them. And when you think about that, well, there is a contrast, isn't there? Jesus has just fed 5,000 using five loaves and some fish. Every day, as the Jews went through the wilderness, apart from the Sabbath, every day, manna just appeared. I mean, how would we have reacted to that? To that contrast? Because that's the contrast that Jesus deals with. And he says to them, initially in his response to that um, difference, he says, I don't supply manna for 40 years. I'm the bread of life. I'm going to supply it for time and for eternity. Your calculation about how long Moses was able to do it. And of course, Moses by himself was unable to do it. Moses depended entirely on God keeping his promise to do this. But Jesus says to them, I'm the bread of life. I can satisfy people forever. Not just for a generation in this world, but for their entire endless existence. I can be to all of them the bread of life. And we're to look at him. Look at this individual, this man, who is saying that he can feed people forever and ever. And the feeding of the 5,000 was just a kind of picture of that. This Moses who was totally dependent on God doing it. Well, Jesus says, I'll do it. Which, of course, is a claim to deity. So look at him. He's the one who can satisfy the souls of people forever and ever. Who wants to look at Moses after seeing that? Who wants a piece of manna after seeing that? All those who ate the manna, they died. No manna for them now. All those who feed on Jesus, 
even should they die. They go on feeding on them forever and ever. So look at him, the eternal supplier, the bread of life. But also in contrast to Moses, Jesus didn't limit his supply to Israelites. He points out there that he's going to give life to the world. Now, Google is quite handy for lots of things. So, I typed in, how many people lived on the world when Jesus said this? And the answer it gave me was 300 million. A lot smaller than the number around today but a lot bigger than the two million that Moses fed every day. Now, the, the Israelites were, the ones listening to Jesus here, were probably totally unaware of the 300 million people that lived in the world. But they would be aware that they were a lot larger than the two million that had been going through the wilderness. So they're standing in front of them. It's a man who says he has got enough resources to meet the needs of the entire world. 300 million living in AD 30, or the vast number that lives today. Jesus personally can give the bread of life to all of them. And we're asked to look at him. Whoever looks on this man who can feed the souls of the entire world, well, look at him. He's capable of the incredible, isn't he? Moses fed this nation with the same thing day after day for 40 years. Jesus offers variety. Riches that will compose eternal life. And he offers that to the entire world if the world needs, to, needs it or comes to him to receive it. Moses also in the wilderness only satisfied their physical needs. The manna was a wonderful provision from above. But what did it do for their souls? It kept them alive physically. But how many of them did it keep alive spiritually? 
It was an incredible miracle, one that showed the God of Israel was far more powerful than any of the pagan gods around. And of course, this, the manna is a wonderful picture of, of um, God supplying the needs of people, and therefore it pictures what he could do for their souls. But we have to ask ourselves what it did do, not what it could do, what he could do. And sadly, most of the ones that um, fed on the manna didn't get to Canaan. But Jesus tells us that if we feed on him, the living bread, we're going to get to the resurrection. So we're to look at him. And one gets the impression that those people in the synagogue in Capernaum, that they came into it with a very big Moses and a very small Jesus. And as they looked at it, they saw a man who was actually saying that Moses, great who he was, in comparison to Jesus, Moses is very small. As a matter of fact, he's not even in the picture. God doesn't even say, or Jesus doesn't even say, as far as the Father's will is concerned, contrast him with Moses. But after you've heard Jesus tell about his bigness, we're to look at him. Of course, all this is done in a Jewish setting. But what he says is still true for all of us. He's going to feed us forever. He can feed us forever no matter how many of us there are. And the life that he will give will suit us physically and spiritually forever and ever. So we're invited to look at him. And I hope we're doing that just now. Jesus does go on to point out that all this blessings of endless provision is totally connected to the fact he's got to die. Because he talks about having to drink his flesh and blood. A very sort of cryptic way of speaking about death. When Moses died, what more could he do for the people? 
he was unable to take them into the promised land. He took them to the borders of it. But his death meant he could do nothing more for them. Jesus, his death, when he gives himself, is going to be the means of him ensuring that everyone who goes to him for the bread of life, that his death will guarantee that it will happen. Because his death was not the end of his story. His death, in contrast to every other death, his death was his achievement. He offered himself as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins. The sins that were caused by God disobeying God's revealed will in Eden. And the sins that are highlighted when we disobey God's revealed will at Sinai. Jesus paid the penalty for that. And because he did that, We can enjoy his provision forever. Jesus here, of course, is he's talking about anyone who looks on the Son and believes in him. He's talking about the initial act of faith. He's not talking about what one does after they believe. Although it is important that um, we do keep on looking at Jesus. But here he's actually describing the initial act of faith. And the way he describes it is, is very interesting. Because the, the word that's translated in, believe in him, actually means believe into him. It's a preposition that indicates direction. But not only does it indicate direction, it indicates arrival. All of us are in this room. But about six o'clock, we came into the room. And there is a difference in the meaning, isn't there? And Jesus is saying here, the Father's will, that we look at him, this omnicompetent person, who can satisfy our souls with the bread of life forever. And who can ensure that we'll be physically there to enjoy it because of the resurrection. He's saying to them, come into me. I mean, that's faith, isn't it? It's to come into Jesus. To be, as it were, surrounded by him. To be submerged in him. 
just to him to be the circle in which we exist. And he's indicating, isn't he, that anyone who, on looking at him, understands who he is, they will come into him. And coming into him, they'll find perfect safety. Faith. We see him who he is. But anyone who actually understands who Jesus is cannot remain static. But immediately they go into him and they're safe forever. And this is the Father's will. What is the, where does the Father want us to be? He wants us to be into Christ. In him. Forever and ever. If we do that, stop in a minute, if we do that, we have eternal life. What is eternal life? Well, Jesus himself told us in John 17 and verse 3, eternal life is to know you. He's speaking to his Father and he says, eternal life is to know you, the true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. It's to have a relationship with God the Father and God the Son. And when we come into Jesus, we are pardoned. That's eternal life. We are forgiven. When we come into Jesus, we come into the heavenly... We come into the, when we believe in Jesus, we become children of the heavenly Father. The atmosphere we now live in is the atmosphere of the Father's house. We are enjoying foretastes of the eternal world in the Father's presence, pardoned and provided for and protected and all the details that can be said about that. We know the Father. That's what happens with eternal life. We know God. But we also know Jesus, the one who was sent to be the Savior, the one that the Father sent. And having come into him, we know him as, uh, as we are often told, he's, he's our prophet, our priest, and our king. And he teaches us about heavenly things. That's eternal life. And as our great priest, he sympathizes with us and gives to us his own personal encouragement and his own strength. And that's part of eternal life. And as our king, he protects us from attack from the enemy, but he also subdues our own sinfulness. And that is part of eternal life. It's all 
part of the process of sanctification that's leading to the world of perfection. Eternal life, says Jesus. This is what the Heavenly Father wants them to have. Eternal life now, but eternal life in its fullness on the great day, resurrection day, life-giving day. Not merely life for our bodies, but life for our whole personalities. And it's a marvelous description that Jesus gives there, doesn't he? <laughs> it's going to be an individual resurrection. I will raise him up. I mean, he's going to know where our bodies are. What they've disintegrated into. He's going to know. And those of us who have been in heaven, because who knows when this resurrection day is, may happen tomorrow, Maybe in a thousand years. Who knows? But when that day comes, he'll raise us up in glory. So we'll be joined together. And of course, the word raise up is elevation. It's not what Lazarus went through. Lazarus came back, but he came back to this life. But we are going to be raised to a new level of life altogether. And that is very precious. But it's also very certain. Because this is the will of the Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. What do you think of God's revealed will? It's a real question. What do you think of God's revealed will? I'll tell you what one man thought of it and then I'll stop. I read it um, by a man called um, Robert Hawker, who I suppose we haven't heard of. But anyway, he wrote a commentary for poor people. It sort of implies that most commentaries were written for rich people. But he wrote one for poor people. And he just explained the chapter, and then at the end of it, he gave a prayer for them to use. And this is his prayer at the end of John chapter 6. Precious Lord Jesus, while I behold thee, my God and Saviour, as set forth in this chapter, feeding the multitudes with the bread which perishes with using, and becoming in the same moment to all thy people the living bread, imparting solid, substantial, soul-feeding, soul-nourishing food for time and for eternity. Lord, I praise thee for the distinguishing mercy 
and beg of my God to excite in my heart such a craving appetite to be fed and nourished in the divine life as none but Christ himself can satisfy. Lord, evermore give me this bread. Lift up the light of thy countenance upon my soul, and it shall put gladness in my heart, more than in the time when their corn and their wine are increased. Jesus, the living bread. Shall we pray? <clears throat> Lord, we give you thanks that in a very strange way, we as creatures made in your image are somehow capable of enjoying the living bread forever. That your plan, your revealed will, is that we should look at Jesus, the great promise maker, who purchased the possibility of us enjoying living bread by his own death on the cross. And it's going to bring about, by his own actions on the resurrection day, He's going to bring about the environment in which all who are in it will feast on the living bread forever. Help us, Lord, to enter into him, to find our security in him, but also to find our satisfaction in him. Lord, do that for your own name's sake. Amen.